Father God, you are good, you are mighty, you are our refuge and strength, you are our fortress, you are there forever and always, Father, and you are always faithful. God, we just love you, we praise you for all you're going to say through Pastor Jake this morning. May you just convict our hearts, Father, where we fall short of your glory. It's in Jesus' name. Thank you, Mark. Our sermon text this morning spans all of 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19. Uh, And I'll just, before I begin, uh, put a plug in uh, for reading the sermon text in advance. We're not always going to read the entire thing uh, before I preach. But uh, you can read that uh, on your own in advance. And usually we list those out on the back of your bulletin if you haven't noticed that that's there. Uh, that's there so you, to help you prepare uh, for the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, would you mind if I just pray one more time? I know we just prayed, but I would like to once again ask God's blessing on our time. Father, please get me out of the way and get all the other distractions and difficulties and set them over to the side so that we can pay attention to what you have for us this morning. And uh, God, you've promised that it was good for Jesus to go away so that he could send the Spirit and that where two or three are gathered in his name, that he's here with us. And so Jesus, we know you're here. Uh, This is your house, and we're here only by your grace. And so I pray that your presence would be known and felt and that it would be a transforming experience. To open up your word. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1816 was an exceptional year in the history of the world. It was a hard year for most people, a deadly year for hundreds of thousands who starved to death around the globe in what came to be known as the year without a summer. Crops failed. Temperatures varied widely from the norm. The sun itself remained veiled behind a global cloud of dust. See, just a few months prior, on April 10th, 1815, a massive mountain on an island in Indonesia vaulted 36 cubic miles of ash and sediments, including 60 megatons of sulfur, as high as 25 miles into the atmosphere. Uh, To put it in perspective, the eruption of Mount Tambora is estimated to have had a hundred times the amount of energy as was expelled from Mount St. Helens in the 1980s. That is uh, unfathomable. The destruction was incalculable. Tens of thousands lost their lives within hours from falling ash, pyroclastic flow, or giant tidal waves crashing into the coasts of surrounding islands. In the following year, many more would die as a direct result of the environmental impact of the explosion. Now, Mount Tambora is actually just the deadliest example of what has taken place dozens of times in Indonesia, a country with more active volcanoes than any other. Residents live in the shadow of these smoking behemoths, the memory of their temperamental outbursts still fresh in local lore. Ironically, though, It's actually the presence of these volcanoes, deadly and terrifying though they may be, 
that enables the people of Indonesia to farm some of the most fertile farmland in the entire world. Coffee growers throughout Indonesia, for example, rely on the nutrient-rich volcanic soil in order to produce the delicious beans that get shipped and roasted and brewed all around the world. And we are so thankful for that, aren't we? But folks, without the eruption, we wouldn't have that volcanic soil. Without the volcanic soil, we'd miss the verdure and the fruitfulness of the soil that makes possible these delicious drinks that we all enjoy. We'd miss out on that coffee. Now, I know that's kind of trite, but in our passage today, we're going to see the anger, the bitterness, the jealousy of King Saul erupt like a massive volcano. The ash and lava are going to spew out of him and begin to ruin his life. And it's going to feel at moments like he's about to ruin David's life as well, like it's boiling over into David's situation as well. But we're also going to see, friends, an ironic reversal, the kind of reversal that our God loves to bring about. The murderous plots of the wicked are going to end up doing the opposite of what they are designed to do. And that volcanic soil, the fallout of the anger and the paranoia of a powerful king, they're going to become the very soil out of which David's blessing grows. This text is a classic example of the ways of God. It's not so much David or even Saul who we're meant to focus on in these chapters. It is I am himself. And what we're going to, to see today, if I can boil down the message of this passage into one sentence, here's what I would say. Remember this, God's blessing grows in the soil of evil's eruptions. God's blessing grows in the soil of evil's eruptions. Think about it. This is the way that God works. Consider Joseph, for example, in the book of Genesis. Joseph is the favored son. He is blessed. He has these dreams and visions about how uh, he's going to be honored by his brothers and even his mother and his father, and yet his brothers hate him, and they sell him into slavery, and he spends time in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. He suffers at the hands of the wicked. That's difficult. That makes it hard to trust God. But at the end of Joseph's life, Joseph's life what does he do? He, he's able to look back on all those circumstances, and he sees all those things, and he says, you all meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? God meant it for good. Those very evil circumstances became the occasion for God's blessing on his life. Or think about Queen Esther. She's living as an exile in a foreign land. A wicked ruler wants to kill her and her countrymen. But through God's providence, she's brought into a place of influence, and the tables turn, and the near destruction of the people of God in the book of Esther become an occasion for victory and exaltation, and God glorifies his name without even once the name of God being mentioned in the book. This is what God does. His blessings grow in the soil of evil's eruptions. Returning to our text, if you walked with David during these years, you might be tempted to think, man, on the one hand, David goes through a lot of difficulties, but on the other hand, he sure is lucky that there's much more going on. It's not luck. It's not good fortune. It's the blessing of God that can take even the ways of the wicked and turn them to the good of his servant. And in this text, we're going to see that in four specific situations, four types of volcanic soil, you might say. 
Four situations in which God's blessing thrives. So first of all, notice with me that God's blessing thrives even when the wicked seethe. Even when the wicked seethe. We see this in chapter 18, excuse me, verses 1 through 16. Uh, The chapter begins by describing David's rapid ascent to the highest levels of honor in the land. He's killed Israel's great enemy, uh, the giant Goliath. We saw that last week. The people are excited. Saul is excited. Saul's son Jonathan is excited. Jonathan loves David. Uh, You'll notice, those of you who read the text in advance probably picked up on this. Notice how many people in these two chapters love David. Everybody loves David. In fact, I think we're meant to see a level of depth to Jonathan's commitment to David. Notice verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now that is a really big deal. Hebrew scholars agree that Jonathan's robe must have been the very garment signifying his unique identity as the crown prince. This is the royal robe that Jonathan wears. His sword and armor, they're not just for decoration either. Remember how rare a sword was in in David's day? Only the Philistines had swords. They were just Saul and Jonathan of the, the children of Israel who bore a sword. And Jonathan gives his sword that he had used to work a great victory decades earlier. And he gives it to David. But it's not just Jonathan who loves David. Saul sets him over the men of war, according to verse 5. That's probably a technical term for Saul's most elite soldiers. And everybody recognizes this is a good move. Here's David. He's in charge of the elite, you know, special forces, so to speak, of Israel. And everybody understands that this is good. And when David and Saul return from the battlefield, the women are singing about the exploits of both men. But Saul's ear perks up, didn't it, when he hears what these ladies are actually singing. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. The alarm bells go off in his head. He's beginning to grow a little jealous of all the love and appreciation David is getting. His military leaders, his servants, even his son. Even the random townspeople are all impressed with David. David, David, David. That's all he hears about anymore. And so Saul gets angry because he thinks he deserves the accolades as part of his kingly due. And notice this rapid progression that takes place in Saul's life. That anger turns to jealousy. The jealousy turns to suspicion. The suspicion turns to paranoia. Paranoia turns to outright fear. Now he's eyeing David. Add to that the fact that Saul is suffering from this harmful spirit from the Lord. He's literally experiencing the judgment of God in real time as a result of his faithlessness and disobedience. And so he's starting to really lose it. And so one day David's playing his lyre in the court. Remember, David is there to help Saul. And he picks up a spear and in a fit of rage he hurls it at David and he tries to pin him to the wall. Well, he misses, but he gets back into a calmer frame of mind, and then he begins, he's still afraid, he's still angry, he's still jealous, and he goes from that rage to this uh, kind of simmering bitterness. And in, in verse 13, we learn that David actually gets removed from Saul's inner circle and demoted in the military. You might not have picked up on that, but David goes from being in charge of the elite soldiers to being placed over a thousand regular army soldiers. 
So friends, don't be naive about evil and wickedness. It is a sinister and pernicious evil that is presented in the Bible. Sin and rebellion will chew you up and spit you out, and the wicked of this world are playing for keeps. This is what Saul is experiencing. This is now what David is beginning to feel. But here's what happens. There's this progression. Wicked people... They long to take their place at the center of the universe. They want all the glory. They want all the power. But then they begin to observe the work of God. And because God dethrones them and and convicts them and shows them that they have no place in the center of the universe, they get angry and then they get afraid and then they get jealous and then they get paranoid. When God begins to put somebody in their place and they refuse to go, their anger ignites and their fear consumes and they begin to intensely try to frustrate the plans and the purposes of God in the lives of God's people. And of course, it's not just these men, these wicked men who do this. It's the spiritual powers of wickedness that lie in the background. The wicked seethe with anger against the Lord and against his anointed. They try to twist God's moral standard. That's what anger is. I'm angry because I'm not getting my due. But it wasn't Saul's due. But notice what God does in David's life. Look at verse 14. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. You know, it's interesting throughout these two chapters, we hear a lot about what Saul thinks and what Jonathan thinks and later what Saul's daughter Michael thinks, but we don't hear a lot about what David thinks. David's thoughts and actions are actually not at front and center in this passage. If you read through both of these chapters, you'll see that it's not that David's being passive. It's not that he's being merely reactionary. It's that, you know, he's doing what he's supposed to do, but what's happening is David is not being successful because of things that David is doing. It's God that's making David successful. He's God's king, and God's king is going to enjoy God's favor even in the face of the seething of the wicked. David, all he has to do is walk in obedience, and God is making it happen for him. Now, my point of, in, in a, making that observation is not to say, trust God. And you'll have success in the world. Trust God and everybody will like you. My point is to say that those whom God promises to bless will experiencing the blessing that God promises regardless of what the wicked do. And sometimes even in light of what the wicked do. David doesn't have to fret over Saul's pettiness or his violent temper. He knows he belongs to the Lord. And friends, you may not be David, but if you're a Christian, you still serve David's God. His operations in the world cannot be frustrated by the wickedness of a man or a woman, powerful and unpredictable, though they may be. God's blessing thrives even when the wicked seethe. But notice with me in the second place from verses 17 through 30 that God's blessing thrives even when the wicked scheme. Even when the wicked scheme What we see taking place in verses 17 through 30 of chapter 18 is an escalation in Saul's life. He started out just losing his temper, then he grows bitter and petty, and here in these verses we see him taking a further step. It's not just him losing his temper and and throwing a spear at somebody in a moment of anger. Now he's beginning to take this back and, and plan in cold blood the murder of David. This is no longer a crime of passion, but a conspiring attempt to murder David in cold blood. And it's here that Saul begins to really look like the person that he's begun to follow and align himself with, Satan himself. 
I mean, look at what happens. We don't have time to read this text, but what Saul does is he, he had offered, uh, if you remember, in the previous chapter, he had offered for whoever kills Goliath to be given his daughter's hand in marriage. And, and he begins to use his own daughters in order to accomplish his murderous schemes. Uh, he, he says, hey, David, you know, you, this is one of the benefits of, of having killed Goliath. And David, uh, of course, is an ambitious man. So Saul's thinking, why don't I use this to get David killed? He'll go out and he'll be ruthless in his pursuit of the enemy and he'll be killed and he won't be my problem anymore. So he sees his opportunity, and, and David, of course, doesn't take the bait. He knows his station in life was way beneath the royal princess. He's ambitious, but he's also self-aware. So uh, plan number one fizzles, and, and this daughter, his oldest daughter, Merib, is given to another man. Well, then Saul tries another tactic. He's not willing to give it up. He appeals to David's ambition in the first place, but now he's going to try flattery. He finds out that his second daughter, Michael, has a crush on David. By the way, uh, this is the only passage in the Hebrew Bible in which a woman is said to love a man. I'm not sure what that says about us men, but I think what we're really meant to see, though, is David really is the beloved one. But Saul takes advantage of this fact. He sends his servants to, to butter David up. David, Michael loves you. Saul is delighted in you. Come on, don't you want to be my son-in-law? And the price, it's just a hundred dead Philistines. So David goes out again to the battle, and they come back with the grisly evidence. Not 100 dead Philistines. He's killed 200 men. And so then Saul is forced to give David his daughter, Michael. And it's at this point that we can make some observations about the way that the author of 1 Samuel is framing David's story. Now keep in mind... Uh, the author, scriptural authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they could say hundreds or thousands of different things, and they limit what they say in order to get a message across. Berkeley scholar Robert Alter, following a long line of rabbinical scholarship, observes that there are numerous linguistic parallels between this period in David's life and the life of the patriarch Jacob in the book of Genesis. So think about this. Both David and Jacob, his predecessor, are taken advantage of by a cruel potential father-in-law who uses his two daughters to gain an advantage. Both men have to pay a heavy price to marry the younger of the two girls. Both men bring great profit to their father-in-law because the blessing of God resides on them. Both experience disappointment and deceit in connection with their wives. Both have to flee their father-in-law's cruelty, and when they're pursued, in both cases, it's their wife who chooses, instead of to go along with dad, the, the wife chooses to protect her husband, and in order to accomplish that deception, in both cases, the wife uses a graven image. Remember, the author under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's going to choose which details he wants to share and leave all these others out. It's the context of a passage. It's the way that the passage is situated in the rest of the story of Scripture that shows us why that passage is relevant. And here's what I think our, our author is communicating about the relevance of this period in David's life. He's saying this, essentially. 
David, like Jacob, is going to experience the promised blessing of God and all the things that God said would happen to Abraham in the book of Genesis, they're all actually going to come about. God's unfailing covenant love, in spite of anything that might come along to challenge it, David, like Jacob, he's the one on whom the promised blessing of Abraham rests. He occupies the center of God's loyal commitment to his people, and it is actually going to be through David that God's blessing comes to all the peoples of the earth, and anybody who curses him is himself going to reap a curse. In other words, God's promises are faithful and his loyal love is unbending and true regardless of of what anybody else does. And, And folks, think about how this flies in the face of how you and I might normally think. Put yourselves in David's sandals for a minute. The king... A man with absolute authority to, to legally kill anybody that he wants to kill is after David. I mean, this would be like you or I going up against the director of the FBI or the U.S. Marshals. It, it, even worse than that. We would never escape. I mean, eventually they're going to get to you. And in David's case, Saul has authority to actually kill him legally. But what we see repeatedly is that in spite of uh, Saul's power, Saul's cleverness, his commitment to the tactics of the devil, David comes out on top every single time. In fact, just like in Jacob's case, it is the schemes of the wicked that God actually uses to bring about the blessing. And just as much as that's true of Jacob and true of David, it's, think about this, it's going to be true in the life of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. His own father, God in heaven, allows him to suffer the most horrible humiliation. He's born in a manger next to the donkeys and the sheep, a fugitive from a murderous tyrant chased into a foreign land, financially poor. By the time he begins his ministry, his back is aching. His hands are weather-worn from all the carpentry. And then after a very short career of teaching and healing and casting out unclean spirits, he is subjected literally to the greatest crime ever committed by any human being in any other part of the world at any time. The death, the murder of the Son of God. So surely evil has had its day with Jesus. From the world's perspective, surely the devil has had the victory, right? I mean, he invested everything in the death of Jesus. He put it into Judas's head to betray him. But no, friends, God's plan advances even when evil is at its worst. His kingdom prevails not just in spite of the work of the devil, but actually through the devil's own self-deceit. Jesus is killed, but all along it's been him who laid down his life so that he might satisfy the wrath of God towards sinners like you and me. And the devil's greatest work, his biggest accomplishment, becomes the very thing that destroys him. This is our God. This is what he does. God's blessing grows out of the soil of evil's eruption. Even when the wicked seethe, even when the wicked scheme, and notice thirdly, God's blessing thrives even when the wicked slander. Even when the wicked slander, we see this in verse, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Once again, another escalation in Saul's uh, murderous schemes. He starts out just with these fits of rage, and then he cools off, and he begins to scheme and to plot and to plan. And then at the beginning of chapter 19, he actually takes his plans to his cabinet in this meeting with the royal court, including his own son. Can you imagine going into the conference room in Gibeah on that day? Saul says, 
you're sitting there around this, you know, table, and Saul says, oh, yeah, there's one more agenda item. You remember David? Yes, David. Yeah, the one, yes, my son-in-law, David. Yes, the guy who killed Goliath. Yes, everybody loves him. I know that. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Kill him. And Saul begins to slander David and, and try to convince his servants and his own son that David is the one in the wrong and deserving of death. Again, this is a play right out of Satan's book. That's why he's called an accuser. That's why he's called an adversary. He loves to twist the moral reasoning of the world to accuse the brethren. He wants to call into question the integrity and the goodness of God's people, and particularly God's anointed. You've seen this happen in your life, I'm sure. How many times has your good, has your obedience to the Lord, has your love-motivated actions been questioned and, and turned into an evil thing by the accusations of an enemy? This has happened to you. In my short life, a lifetime, I, I, I've observed even culture-wide the same shifts that, that you have. What was considered, when, when following Christ used to be considered preferable, it is now considered optional. Have you noticed that? And when, where following Christ used to be considered optional, it's now considered dangerous and bigoted and hateful. You've seen this with your own eyes. But once again, David doesn't need to go out of his way to mitigate the effects of the slander. He doesn't need to take matters into his own hands. He just needs to walk in obedience and, and rest in the fact that God's blessing is going to grow out of that evil soil. Actually, in the rest of the book, uh, Jonathan, of course, in this case, uh, he, he comes through for David. He defends David, and that's what he's going to do in the rest of the book. Jonathan's actually going to be like a foil for Saul's response to King David. Saul wants to murder him. Jonathan wants to see him ascend to the throne. And what that tells me, I don't know... Uh, what might have happened in Saul's life, but I think, I truly believe that if Saul had accepted the judgment of the Lord and just laid aside his crown and said, this is the Lord's anointed now, then things might have gone very differently for him. But either way, God's blessing on David still thrives in spite of the slander. Once again, in verse 8, we're told David, uh, chapter 19, verse 8, David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him, and David continues to thrive even when the wicked Slander. Reminds me of how Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil things against you falsely for my sake, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The blessing of God grows in the soil of evil's eruptions. It thrives even when the wicked seethe, even when they scheme, even when they slander. And fourthly, God's blessing thrives even when the wicked stalk, even when the wicked stalk. And we see this in chapter 19, verses 11 through 24. Once again, this is an escalation in Saul's life. He starts out with this internal rage and bitterness, and then he spreads it out to the rest of the people. He tries to slander David. And then beginning in 19, verse 11, he takes it further. He takes it outside the palace walls. He actually sends men to David's house, to the house where his own daughter slept, men who would lie in wait outside for David to come out so they could kill him. Now, I said earlier, we don't, in this chapter, in these two chapters, we don't get a lot of David's internal reasoning. Uh, we don't see a lot of what David's thinking during this time. 
But elsewhere in the Bible, we do. Because just like Bill read earlier, he read the 59th Psalm. He didn't read the superscription, though. Uh, this Psalm 59 was actually written during this moment when all these men are gathered around David's house and they're lying in wait for him. They're waiting to kill him. That's when Psalm 59 was written. And this is important because it's so easy for us to sit in our cushioned chairs this morning in this air-conditioned room and we're so comfortable and we've grown accustomed to this idea that this is what, this is what faith looks like, that we're comfortable and we do something, and we know when it starts. It starts at 1045, and we know when it ends. It's supposed to end at 12, but Pastor Jake takes it a little bit longer. We know that. Uh, you know, we know that. It, that. This is what faith looks like. But friends, the Bible was not written to comfortable people in a middle-class, air-conditioned room. It was written to people who were in David's desperate situation. Like, he's sitting there. Think about this. He's sitting there in his own home. His wife is crying. All the lights are off. He's got maybe one candle next to him, and he's writing Psalm 59. And out, outside the window, he can hear these guys prowling around like predators, waiting for him to come out. See, the Bible was not written for our comfortable lives. It was written for the desperate. And that is what Psalm 59 is. That it's the cry of a man who is about to be murdered. Who doesn't know whether he's going to survive the night. So that's what I say, that God's blessing grows in the soil of evil's eruption. I'm not talking about when somebody cuts you off on the road in front of you, like, and you get angry about that. I'm talking about real stuff. Let me ask you a question. What do you pray for when there are men outside your home waiting to spill your blood on the ground when you walk out the door? If, if somebody came to you and said, I need some advice, how do I pray when somebody's about to stab me to death? What would you say? You say, well, I believe all things work together for good, and I remember that verse. <laughs> Listen, in that moment, you aren't going to have a serene time of meditation with the Lord where you just feel so calm and at rest. What did David do when he's sitting there waiting for these men to come in and bang down the door? He just poured out his heart before the Lord. He complained to God. That's what he did. He didn't clean up his thoughts and make sure that they were nice and tidy before bringing them to God. He just brought them to God. And, and he essentially made three complaints. First of all, he said, God, I am innocent. In this matter, I am innocent. I didn't do what they're saying that I did. I didn't try to usurp Saul's throne. I didn't try to take over the kingdom. You anointed me. You're the one who did this to me, God. I'm innocent in this. Second thing he prayed is kill these guys. Jake, we're not supposed to pray that in the age of grace. Okay, maybe not every time you want to. But think about it this way. Some of you, we are so comfortable. <laughs> we forget how comfortable we are. Some of you have been in combat situations. Very, I've never been. Very few of us have been. Some of you have been there. You know that there are times when it is either you survive or that guy survives, and there is no compromise that's going to take place in that situation. And so what are you praying in that moment? Kill that guy. 
It's life or death. And the Bible, friends, the Bible is not just for the easy problems. It's for the life and death problems. What's more than that? Think about what David's doing in Psalm 59. Spare no, he says, spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Spare none. What is he doing? He's saying, he's saying throughout this whole series of incidents, he's saying, God, justice is in your hands. I'm not going to take it into my hands. And throughout the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see David has chance after chance after chance to take it into his own hands, and he doesn't do it. Why? What gives him the ability to do that? It's praying a prayer like this. God, you are the one who gets vengeance. You are the one. I'm not going to kill Saul. You take care of it. You're the judge. You're the real king. I'm leaving it in your hands. Isn't that exactly what we're supposed to be saying when evil attacks? God, I didn't do anything wrong, but the wicked are closing in. Can you please just take care of this? He complains, he's innocent, he prays for vindication, he prays for the punishment of the wicked, and thirdly, he prays for protection. God, you are my fortress. Actually, it's a prayer of confidence in the face of these trials because David remembers that he was anointed by the Lord's prophet. So, friends, the Lord's, the Lord's anointed can pray these prayers and fully expect that God will answer them. God, vindicate me. God, protect me. God, Punish the wicked, save me from them. And this morning, if you are united to the Lord's anointed, if you are in Christ, then here's a thing that you can pray and know that God is going to answer it. God, I am righteous in Christ. I am right with him. I'm right with you because of what Jesus has done. I'm being attacked by evil. Protect me, God. Punish the wicked. You take justice into your own hands, not me. And God will answer that prayer. Not only are the powers of wickedness completely unable to stop the flow of God's blessings to his covenant people, but the efforts of evil actually become a part of that conduit that God uses to propel his kingdom forward. It's the volcanic soil of evil out of which the good fruit of the grace of God grows and thrives and blooms and blossoms and bears fruit. And over and over again, we see this in David's interaction with King Saul Saul, who could have submitted to the Lord's choice and given deference to David, but, but chose to oppose him. David, God uses Saul's evil to bring David's blessing. And by the end of chapter 19, Saul's wicked schemes, uh, if you haven't read this, you have got to read it. So by the end of chapter 19, here's what happens. Saul's schemes have kind of gone, uh, run their course. But look at what happens. This is God's Wonderful reversal victory. See, after his son, after Saul's son chooses David, what does he do? He gives, he takes off his royal robe and he gives it to David. And what does that signify? Maybe he didn't understand it at the time, but here's what it signified. It's not me. I'm not the crown prince anymore. David, you are the, uh, the anointed. You're the one that's going to be the next king. And what happens at the end of, the ch of chapter 19, after Jonathan did that willingly and joyfully, the end of chapter 19, here's what happens to Saul. David runs away. He runs to, to Samuel's home, and he, they're, they're there with the prophets, and Samuel sends some men uh, to, to go after him, to kill him. They uh, are overcome by the Spirit of God, like it's God himself directly impacting these men and preventing them from committing murder. 
And then Saul says, okay, I've got to do this myself. And then Saul goes to Samuel's home, and it's Saul that the Spirit of God takes over, even though he wasn't willing to submit to, Dave, to, to God's king. And then what happens to Saul at the end of chapter 19? Saul himself strips off his royal robe, and he's there prophesying, and it's, and it's like... It's poetic justice. This is what God does. He reverses the, the causes of evil, and he actually makes them the occasion through which he channels his blessing. And what happens in the case of David and Saul, it becomes a picture of what's going to take place at the last day. I mean, think about this. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? There's going to come a day when after Jesus has been humiliated and became obedient to the point of death, what's going to happen? Every knee is going to bow of things in heaven and things on earth, things under the earth, everything, whether willingly and joyfully or unwillingly and begrudgingly, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And in that day, everyone's going to know that God's kingdom advances and his blessings grow, not just in spite of the burning wickedness of the world, not just in spite of it, but that wickedness, that becomes a very soil out of which God's blessing, God's blessing grows. You say, Jake, this morning, <laughs> uh, I started following Christ a, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, a couple of years ago. Since that time, I thought that things were going to get better. And actually, I've suffered more. And actually, uh, Jake, what I'm experiencing is not just it's not just suffering. I think it's evil. <laughs> like, I feel like somebody is against me and out to get me. What is going on? And friend, what I want to say to you is, this is, this is something that God is, this is exactly what God means to happen. Because what he wants to show you and what he wants to show the world is that through that evil, through the attacks of the enemy, that he's actually going to bring about his blessing and he's going to reverse those fortunes and he is going to grow your faith. This is what God is interested in. God knows what's best for you. You think, hey, it, wouldn't it be great if my circumstances were better if I didn't have to suffer so much? And God says, I know better than you. I know better than you do. What's best for you is that your faith would grow. What's best for you is that you learn to trust me more and know me more. And so, yes, I'm going to allow even evil in your life because it's out of that soil that my blessing's going to grow and your faith is going to grow. Amen. Now, here's the thing. Here's the practical upshot. What is the basic meaning of Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Just basically, a Christian is somebody who trusts God, right? Because of what Jesus has done, I trust God. But here's practically what we tend to do. We say, yes, I'm going to trust God when the air conditioning is working, when the seat has a cushion, <laughs> when I have money in the bank, when my relationships are working well, when my kids are doing what I ask them to do, when I'm getting good grades, you get what I'm saying. I'm going to trust God in these, in when the circumstances are great. But when we have a real problem, when evil happens, when we are suffering deeply, like when I have a, a, an issue with anxiety that I cannot handle at all. When, when I lose my job and then it's been a week and then it's been a month and then it's been three months and I don't know what to do. When my wife and I are fighting, when, when I'm really having a problem, that's when I say, okay, I, I am done trusting God. Now I'm going to go out to the world and find the real solution because now I have a real problem. 
And friends, when we do that, listen, here's what happens. When we do that, we are taking the circumstances that God intends to show his glory most vividly, to show his blessing most amazingly, and we're saying, I'm going to cut away those circumstances, and I'm going to bring them over here, and I'm going to handle them in a worldly way because I don't really trust God in them. And friends, we've got to get to the point with David where even when the guys are circling my house, even when they are out for my life, I remember that God can handle that. I remember that even the real problems God has a plan for. I remember that it is the most evil circumstances out of which God's blessing can grow. Now, there are those of you in this room who today, like Andrew said, you're dealing with a specific problem. And when I say specific problem, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. And I'm telling you, friend, you're tempted to do it your way. You're tempted to handle it your way. Listen, stay with me. And God's going to bring you to a place where you, ha- where you have to choose between your way and his way. And that choice, I, in many of these circumstances, that choice is going to be so clear. And you're going to be tempted to go your way. And I'm telling you, if that's where you're at right now, you've got to do a David that you've got to go God's way. You've got to really trust him with that. And I know that's hard. And I know that's difficult. But this is what God calls us to do, even in those dark circumstances. So, okay, enough said. I I think we need to just give this to the Lord now, okay? Would you bow with me now? And let's just bring these circumstances to God. Father, there are... There are evil circumstances and evil schemes at work assailing the lives of your people. And in the depths of these pits, we we cry out to you and say, God, we're suffering. God, we're in a moment of lamentation and difficulty and hardship. The enemy is working, and the proud seem to be winning. And God, in this moment, when, when that evil circumstance seems to be at its most intense, I pray that you would give by your spirit the strength to trust. And that we would not give in to the temptation to handle it our way, but we would give you free reign to do in our lives what you want to do. Lord, I pray that you would make this a moment where we surrender that thing to you. Uh, Father, as we sing, we pray that you would work and show us the path and show us what it looks like to trust you instead of trusting in ourselves. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.